So our text is Ecclesiastes 6.10 through 7.14. Whatever one is, he has been named already, for it is known that he is man, and he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. Since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? For who knows what is good for man in life, all the days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason, and a bribe debases the heart. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. For wisdom is a defense as money is a defense. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. Consider the work of God. For who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other, so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would awaken us to it, that you would cause us to not only want to see and understand, but to live it out and obey it. We pray, Father, for uh, the power of your Holy Spirit to do this, and we thank you for your blessings and for your presence. In Christ's name, amen. I'll again recap. They'll get briefer, I believe, as time goes on. We've had five messages. The first two were covering Ecclesiastes 1 through 3. Vain repetition, a life without God, purpose and meaning, a life lived with God and for God. The next two were all about relationships. The first was about how we are to value people. It gave us the errors of how we treat people, and then it gave us right in the middle how we can look to one another for strength and comfort. Then we talked about coming into the house of God and how we are to behave, how we are to listen far more than we are to speak. Then the last one, three weeks ago, we were to seek satisfaction. And so we learned, though, that God withholds or gives us satisfaction at his whim. We seek satisfaction only through God, and all that seek it apart from him come away dissatisfied. Now, I know some here don't have televisions even, let alone watch TV, but uh, in this instance alone, perhaps, you've really missed out, at least in my opinion, in the last few months or couple weeks. Uh, there's been a commercial that's been popular. It's one of these many Geico commercials, and you see a, 
a cubicle farm, what we call them, when you're in an office space and you see lots of cubicles and people sitting in them. And in walks a camel, and the camel starts walking down the rows of cubicles. And the camel is saying, come on, come on, what day is it? What day is it? And all the people are like groaning and lowering their heads. And finally, he walks up next to us at front of the camera, and there's a woman there. And he says, come on, what day is it? And the woman says, hump day. You, you heard it, it's hump day. And the camel's all smiling and laughing because it's in honor of him, of course, the camel. The camel in honor of his hump. And so we all know that Wednesday is hump day. It's the middle of the week. It's the middle of the work week. And you'll hear uh, comments about it fairly regularly if you work in an in a office like I do. They're just always people that are looking forward to Wednesday and Friday. They hate Monday. We're at hump day in terms of Ecclesiastes. We are crossing over the midpoint of Ecclesiastes today. The, in the first message, I explained to you that there are two parts to Ecclesiastes, and they're equally distributed. They meet right at this text, 610, the one we started reading today. So the first half was denoted by what man cannot do, his inability. He's limited in his ability. And the phrase grasping for the wind captured that as a euphemism. Seven times it was stated in that first half, and I used the last one last time. And so the second half starts today. And the emphasis in the second half is about how man cannot know. He is limited in knowledge. He cannot know now what he wants to know. He cannot know what is coming. So man is limited in ability. He's limited in knowledge. 6.10 reads, Whatever one is, he has been named already, for it is known that he is man, and he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. We are by definition, a created being, and so we are limited. God is an uncreated being, and he is unlimited. When I also gave that first message, I also said that there is a phrase by which I viewed all of Ecclesiastes, and it was, a man's got to know his limitations. So Ecclesiastes is all about what limits us as man. I said a man's got to know his limitations, but you can see by the title of the sermon today that it's actually slightly different. I, I gave it a little tweak today. Solomon wrote this. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. God had granted him that. That was a request that he had. He wanted to rule God's people well, so God gave him this wisdom, this wealth of wisdom. And yet... Even though Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived, I don't think he realized when God blessed him with that that it could potentially also result in it essentially being a curse for him because what it did is it rendered him unique, utterly unique on the earth. He had no equal. He had no peer. He had no one that could really relate to him and the intellect that he brought to bear on this world, the wisdom that he brought to bear on this world. And I believe he suffered because of that. His only strong competitor in this regard was God himself. When I was little, I had, we were, there were five of us, and uh, I was the third son, I was the fourth child, and we would periodically play Monopoly. Monopoly. 
And my mom, I don't think, would ever join us. She's like my wife now, hates games. And yet, my dad would invariably win at Monopoly. And it drove my older brother crazy. He was the oldest son, and he seemed to regard himself as the champion of the children or whatever. He wanted to take dad down. And it would anger him to no end when we would, the other children, give our dad good deals, good property deals. We know we're going to lose. And so right away, we start giving our dad all these good deals. I mean, my brother just would get so angry. Why are you doing that? You're cheating. He viewed our father as a competitor, and it stuck with him throughout their relationship. I mean, it didn't always manifest itself in uh, ways like this, just with a game. They just were at it all the time, it seemed to me, because my brother regarded my father as his primary competitor in life. I don't know why, but he just could not accept the fact that he was in a submissive relationship to this man, and he should accept it and enjoy it. Instead, he was always competing. And I think many of us who are naturally competitive feel that way. We see it. We see it happen to people. So, I believe that Solomon's test was in part a competition against God himself. Who else was there to compete against for Solomon? He had no earthly competitors. And so, when he devised this test of Ecclesiastes and then began this test, I don't think he even realized that this was a test against God himself. He only realized it as it was unfolding, as he was failing, and it was so frustrating to him because he had excluded God from the test. Men are limited. Women are limited. We are by nature limited. Our limitations are inherent because we're created beings, and yet we resent these. Even Adam and Eve, in the sinless state that they existed in in the garden, resented, resented any infringement of their freedoms. The one thing they were told not to do, they were easily enticed into wanting to do. You're not supposed to do that one thing in the garden, but then it became their obsession. And that's in a sinless state. So you can see that this is just inherent in humanity. It's inherent in the fact that we are creatures. At that point, it wasn't even sinful. But they were pursuing something that was just beyond their grasp. And it frustrated them to the point where they pursued it off into temptation and sinned. Now in uh, 11 here, we see, since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? Uh, the New King James is kind of tough to parse. This is a phrase that seems uh, difficult to understand. The ESV is actually quite straightforward. The more words, the more vanity. And so that's fairly simple. And I believe that's what Solomon is saying. In other words, you who want to compete against God, like Job did, let's say, in trying to justify himself, Adam and Eve did in attempting to defend their actions in the garden. Any of us that attempt to justify ourselves before God, we're pushing uphill all the way, aren't we? God created language. God is the master of language. God created all the words and their meanings. We learn to abuse words to get our way. We learn to twist the truth, to not reveal all the truth. God doesn't even have to do that. He doesn't have to cheat. 
He doesn't have to, in, uh, in any way, push the playing board in his favor. He doesn't need sons that give him good deals on property deals like we would with my dad in Monopoly. He just beats us all the time because he knows the truth, he applies the truth consistently, and we don't. We are weak, we are frail, we want what we want. For who knows what is good for man in life all the days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? This is why this is the midway point in the book of Ecclesiastes, because we have these rhetorical questions. Who knows what is good for man in life? And by good for man in life, he means how are we to spend our time? What are we to do? We are finite creatures. We have many choices about how we can spend our time on this earth. What are we to do with that choice? What are we to do with that time? It's all about doing. It's all about our abilities, how we can spend our time. Who can tell a man what will happen after him? It, that's about knowledge, isn't it? Who can tell a man what will happen after him? So we cannot do all that we want. We cannot know all that we want. Who can know what is good for man in life? Who can tell a man what will happen after him? We have all of Ecclesiastes really in these two rhetorical questions being asked of us, the reader. And so the unspoken answer here is God alone. God alone has the answer to this question. God alone can guide us in how we spend our time and in dealing with the unknown, dealing with the fact that we lack knowledge. Now, the interesting thing about this is that right after he asks these rhetorical questions, he goes into the whole second section of Ecclesiastes, starting at 7.1, and he tells us what to do, which he just asked, how can we know what to do? And then Solomon starts telling us what to do. And he also, as he's telling us what to do, in some instances says why, what this leads to. In other words, this is what is coming. This is what it leads you to. That foretells the future in a very limited way, a very human, finite way. But yet, it's interesting that, see, in 6.12, the questions that are being asked are from the omniscient perspective. You want to know it completely. You want to know exactly what to do, exactly what's coming. I want these worries to go away that fill my mind. Whereas when he goes into 7.1, he begins with it from man looking up, man living out his life. What am I going to do today? How am I going to live? How is it wise to live? Now, uh, last time, I believe, I mentioned that there are in Ecclesiastes and in Proverbs, all the wisdom literature, there are these better-than Proverbs. And I said that later we'll get to them, and here, we, here they are. There are in 7, 1 through 8, seven better-than Proverbs that I want to walk you through. I'll walk you through them really quickly here, but at first I just want to tell you that these are just comparative. This is better than that. It's in no way trying to give some ultimate gradation of goodness, it's just saying this is better than that, and in some instances, why? But in some, he just assumes you know it to be true. So let me give you the seven, because you have to ferret them out. We have two in verse one. A good name is better than precious ointment. The day of death is better than the day of birth. 
In verse 2, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter. In verse 5, it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than the song of fools. And then 2 in verse 8, the end of a thing is better than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Now, I have these colored green or red. I have the first one green and the last three green, but then I have the second, third, and fourth in red. And that's because the green ones made sense to me in a cursory reading, and the red ones didn't. They seem non-intuitive or counterintuitive. So let's address them in order, at least at first. The first one, a good name is better than precious ointment. Now, I want to point out one thing unique about this one. This is the only one that introduces an intangible, a good name. A good name is kind of an intangible, and yet it contrasts it with a tangible, a precious ointment. A good name is better than a precious ointment. So see, the good name being better than this tangible thing means that the intangible is better than the tangible. And that's true in our lives just generally. Jesus said it well. Why do you lay up treasure here on earth where moth and rust corrupt? Lay up treasure in heaven. But see, the treasure that we have in heaven, maybe we, our accounts are different than God's accounts, but the treasure we have in heaven is intangible from our earthly perspective, yet it is ultimately the more tangible. It's the only one he uses like this, but I think he does that for that reason. He introduces this immediate contrast, and then he goes off into all tangible aspects. The second one is in the second portion of verse 1, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. The day of death is better than the day of one's birth. Now, this is the first one that seems puzzling to us. How can our death be better than our birth? I want to return to this one. I'm going to skip down to the sixth one, and the sixth one is at the start of verse 8. And I think you'll see why. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. That's the sixth better than. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. Now, why would the end of a thing be better than the beginning of a thing? Because you don't always get to the end of a thing when you're at the beginning of a thing, do you? I was reading... And, and this popped into my head, and then I looked it up a little bit. But the Northwest Passage was a passage across North America that the Europeans sought for how long? Over 400 years, they sought a passage through the North American continent. Why? Because in the 1400s, the Ottoman Turks took all of Eastern Europe and, and uh, the area now around the Middle East where this trade route, the Silk Route, would go over to the Far East. The Europeans had their trade route with the Far East cut off, just like that. The Ottoman Turks cut it off. And so for hundreds of years after that, the Europeans sought a path to the West to get around to trade with the Eastern nations. And so we know they traveled across North America extensively. Even Lewis and Clark, they were looking for a navigable waterway across this country, across this continent, and they didn't find it. It was a Munson that finally found it, and it's way up in the Arctic. I mean, half the time, those rivers are frozen over. And so there's no way they could have been traversed by the ships of those days back in the 1500s. So see, there were many, many journeys there that had a beginning, but not a successful end. 
So that's why the end of a thing is better than the beginning because the end is success. Think about that. Now let's go back. The day of death is better than the day of one's birth. Do people regard death as success? Some will tell you that it is the end of a journey. Life is a journey, enjoy it and all that. But many unbelievers say those things, but yet at death they believe that's the end. That's the end of the journey. Why is that end of that journey good? It's not. Not in their opinion. It was the journey itself that held value. The end, meaningless, nothing, nothing good there. But see, that's to turn this the end better than the beginning on its head. We're at the end because we're successful. So see, when people die, are they truly successful? At Katie Nissen's memorial, it was obvious that the Nissens regarded her life's journey as a success. Here she was, a 17-year-old girl, the youngest of their extended family. Uh, Tim and Pam, uh, all their girls, all their parents, that whole sphere, she's the first one to die and she's the youngest. But it was a celebration wasn't it? Now, it was a celebration that was, from my perspective personally, filled with sadness. I was trying the whole time, tearing, weeping, I tell Tabitha. It's, it's, I got this weak eye. It's all about the weak eye. But so, I just couldn't keep them very far away. I'm sure the Nissens couldn't either. But see, death, the death of someone as beautiful as Katie, and I didn't really know her. You know, those of us that formed Dominion, Katie was three when we came over here. And so most of us didn't really know her. We didn't see her grow up. But yet, from what you've learned, she was just a beautiful human being. And yet, when we here on the earth are looking up at those stormy skies, we just see gray clouds. That's all we see. You have to get above those clouds to see the beautiful sun, the beautiful tops of the clouds, and see that's Katie's perspective now. So Katie succeeded in her journey. And yet anybody, anybody who dies a death apart from God has failed in that same journey. So see, we end our life on this earth as a journey, but it either meets with success or failure. The next phrase then you can relate to better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. This is the first one that introduces a proof text. Some of them do. Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Now, a better way of phrasing this that is more uh, understandable to us is that it is better to go to a funeral home than to a wedding reception. That's putting it into today's context. It's better to go to the funeral parlor and see the dead in the casket and pay your respects to the loved ones than it is to go to the wedding reception and enjoy the free food and the free booze and all the fun and partying and dancing and all that. So see, that is in Solomon's wise words what it is that he advocates we do. Just generally, as a general principle, this is wiser than that because it forces you to face your mortality. I talked to a coworker when I returned from Katie's celebration, and she 
knew of the family. She knew the situation. Her husband works at OPPD. And I said, did you attend? No, my husband did. Uh, did you hear about it? No, not really. She just wanted to change the subject. She did not want to talk about this. And she just said, it's sad. It's sad. I can't imagine what the family's going through. And then just kind of wanting to go talk about something else. And I said, yeah, I was there. I said, the pastor actually said that. He said, uh, no parent should have to pick out a casket for their child. And I can agree with that on principle, yeah. Death is still the enemy. It does happen to coincide with the end of our journey that for a Christian is a success. And so we don't look forward to death as the evil that the other people of the world look to it as. And that makes sense to me. They face death as the end of a journey, and that end is unwanted. They want the journey to go on forever. But we don't. We don't want to constantly battle with sin, temptation, the evils of this world. But now feasting is not bad. Remember, this is comparative. It's better to go to the funeral home than to the wedding reception, but yet there's a time to go to the wedding reception. As we learned in uh, Ecclesiastes 3, right? There is a time to dance. There is a time to mourn. The next one is similar. Sorrow is better than laughter. And again, it has a proof text. For by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. Sorrow heals hearts. There is a phrase that is very popular nowadays. Laughter is good medicine. Now, I believe most of us tacitly agree with that statement. Laughter is good medicine. But sadness is better medicine. Laughter is good medicine is a very loosely translated excerpt from Proverbs 17:22. A merry heart does good like medicine. A merry heart does good like medicine. But you see, it's not talking about laughter, not the way Scripture talks about laughter. Laughter isn't referred to much in Scripture. It's maybe about 30 times. The bulk of them are referring to laughs of derision or scorn either humans towards other humans, humans towards God, or God towards rebellious man. Laughter can be seen as that. It is a laugh of derision, a laugh of scorn. But there is obviously the laughter, the joy that comes with fun and frivolity, and that's good. But that's not the medicine. That laughter is coming out of this merry endeavor. The sadness is healing. It's working inward on that heart. So see, they're fundamentally different. Laughter can mask the true broken heart, and people will indulge in that. My mother always had sitcoms on TV. She almost never sat down and watched TV, but she'd have the TV on all the time. And it had to be on a certain station. She'd be in the kitchen, and she'd hear the half hour or hour pass. She'd know it's on the wrong station. She'd come into the living room, change the station, go back into the kitchen. It made no sense to me. But that was her world. She wanted that noise all the time. It drove me mad. But you can see how people who 
are lonely and broken want that. They want comfort in that empty laughter. It's so empty. It's so sad. But yet, some people live like that. They live their whole lives like that. They don't recognize that it is a fake joy, a fake happiness. Verse 5, and this is the fifth. Better to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. And a proof, like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. And so you can imagine this. We're all, I think, familiar, most of us are familiar with trying to get a fire going, and you don't have anything really good to get burning on it. And so you go get leaves or twigs and things like this. You got lots of those. Well, you know how blazing fires consume leaves and twigs. It's just like that. You wear yourself out trying to feed a fire and have a sustainable fire with those things. That's this. You've got these thorns that are all airy and vacuous. You crumple them all in there, and poof, they're gone. They crackle and pop, and they, they're very bright for a few seconds, and then they're gone. Not sustainable. And so it is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools, because that's what the song of fools is. It's, it's patterned after this crackling and popping of the thorns under the fire. It's not fuel. That type of vacuous humor does not fuel your soul. It just leaves it more and more empty. So you must learn from these things and seek what is lasting, seek what is good, seek the proper fuel for your soul. And part of it comes through rebuke, through us seeking to be rebuked. And yet how many of us really seek to be rebuked? When rebuke comes, we are defensive. When rebuke comes, we deny it. That's not true. Or it's not true because of this, that, or the other. It's partially true. You know, we're very quick to defend ourselves. And yet Solomon clearly states that to be rebuked is better than to hear the song of fools. So we must treasure these words that are meant to improve us, to improve our characters. And now we'll skip to the last one since we already did the sixth at, the, uh, at verse 8. We'll do the second one in verse 8. And that is that the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Patient determination leads to success in your endeavors. Patient determination. When I see people that are patiently determined, always respectful, you, you are looking at a winner. They are going to achieve their goals. They are impressive to see. They are not dissuaded from what they want, and yet they don't go off into anger. They just continue to hammer away at the logic of their arguments, at the merit in their arguments, and they wear people down. It's like that importunate widow. That's exactly how these people are worn down, through consistent repetition of a good message, a message that has merit. So the patient in spirit are better than the proud in spirit. Now, there were two more sayings mixed in here that didn't have a better than proverb, and so I'll share them now. They're in verse 7 and 9. In verse 7, oppression destroys a wise man's reason, a bribe debases the heart. So you see, the oppression is a wise man oppressing someone else, and so that destroys the wise man's wisdom. And a bribe, a wise man accepting a bribe, destroys his wisdom. We think in our man, manly hubris, we think that we are wise. 
We think wisdom is something like skill or knowledge, and yet it's fundamentally different. Now, it's true that God can easily give us or withhold skill and knowledge, but wisdom, God has a special place for wisdom, and He grants it and He withholds it. We abuse it, He takes it away. We no longer behave wisely. Often, wise men make really, really stupid mistakes, and I believe it's because they forget where that wisdom is coming from. They forget that it's God that gives and withholds this wisdom. And, verse 9, do not hasten to be angry. The way this is phrased, you have to hear this. Do not hasten to be angry. Solomon presumes that we have control over our anger. I have an illustration. Think of it like this. You're in the kitchen. You have a pot on the stove. It's on high, and suddenly you see it starts to boil up. You hear it. You see it. What do you do about it? You shut off the heat. You get the pot off the heat, right? That's just natural. We all, anybody that's operated in a kitchen, even as minimally as I have, knows that you're supposed to do that. What does the fool do? Enjoys the boiling over. That's, I think that's what they're doing. They're intentionally allowing it to boil over. They're rejoicing in the opportunity to vent what it is that they want to vent. They're taking comfort in this explosion. And yet Solomon says, you're in control of it. Do not hasten to be angry. People indulge in this by choice just like any other sin. They choose it. They want it. They feed on it. It fuels this evil within them. Now, there is a last better than saying, and it's actually the opposite, and it's at verse 10. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. We have a phrase for this, don't we? The good old days. The good old days. Many of us, we're all guilty of doing this. We're all guilty of reflecting back on the good old days when something that I now despise didn't exist in that idyllic past, right? And so we oversimplify and overgeneralize and just cast all of what we now enjoy into the fire, say, that means nothing. Oh, it was so good back then. And what are we doing? We are judging all of what we now enjoy as nothing. We're judging it, and we really shouldn't be. We don't have the knowledge and the awareness that God has in order to make that type of judgment. But we're taking one little thing and then overgeneralizing and oversimplifying it and castigating all of what else we could enjoy. So see, that comes from a root of bitterness. We ought not to do that as Christians. It's not right. And so we cannot look to the past as being the perfection that we want to return to. That's the past. God intends it to be in the past. He always wants us looking forward. As long as you're looking in the past, you can't look in the future. You're not going to want to move forward. And so God always wants us moving forward. And then we come back to 6.12, to these questions. Who knows what is good for man in life all the days of his vain life? And see, that's what we're saying. The former days were better than these. 
we're acting as if we're God. We're oversimplifying and acting as if we're God. We just ought not to make such bold statements. Let me go back to Ecclesiastes 2. It was back in the vanity section, the vain repetition section. I'm going to read uh, from verse 12 to 16. 2, 12 to 16. Then I turned myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who succeeds the king? Only what he has already done. Then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I myself perceived that the same event happens to them all. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, this also is vanity, for there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die as the fool? And he goes on for several more verses on this vein. But I just wanted to tell you that Solomon is criticizing wisdom, but only in that context, only in the context of vain repetition, where he's attempting to use wisdom as insulation from living a life in God's world. But wisdom, as contrasted with foolishness, is always good, always better than. And so he's not saying wisdom has no value. He's saying, oh, no, no, wisdom has a lot of value. Even to those that don't know God, wisdom has value. God has blessed them with this. See, with knowledge, it leads to a puffing up, right, an excess. It leads to pride and a fall. And we'll get to uh, this relative to wisdom in uh, next, the next message, but it's not the same. There is no excess of wisdom because wisdom, by definition, means that you are behaving wisely. So, see, knowledge can lead us to pride very easily, but wisdom, properly understood, is always good. You can't have an excess of that. God has blessed you with it. You are to exercise it. You are to thank God for it. Now, we've gotten through that section, that 7-1 through 7-12, and now I want to point out why I chose this name for the sermon and why I chose the text that I did. So, there are parallels between chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, and chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and I want to point those out to you because I had told Gary last week that I was going to preach on only 10 through 12. I finally had made up my mind, and then I changed it because I just couldn't get away from these correlations. They're just so meaningful. So let me read 10 through 12. Whatever one is, he has been named already, for it is known that he is man, and he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. Since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? For who knows what is good for man in life, all the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? And then 7, 13, and 14. Consider the work of God, for who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, but in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other, so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. I want to point out three uh, correlations here. In 6.10 at the end, he talks about not contending with God, being unable to contend with him who is mightier than him, God. And in 7.13, the second part, who can make straight what he has made crooked? In other words, we cannot fix what God has broken. 
I, I've told you, it's been a few years, but I read a book by a man by the name of Paul Brand, and Philip Yancey co-wrote it with him. He ran the only leprosarium in the U.S. down in Louisiana. When he devised a means for these people suffering from leprosy to understand that they were overtaxing their digits, you know the leprosy victims typically lose their fingers because they are actually dead nerves, and they just abuse them. You know, they'll go pick up that pot, they'll go stick their hand in that boiling pot. They don't feel anything, and so they abuse their body. Paul Brand thought he could do better than God. And so he said, why cause people pain? I could do better than this. So he gave them gloves that would have these lights that blink when they were exceeding what they needed to do. But they would ignore the lights. They wanted the lid open. I'm going to open the lid. This hand can do it. Oh, it's doing damage. Uh, I don't feel anything. Ooh, open it. So what he found was that he had to inflict pain upon these people suffering from leprosy because otherwise they would just destroy their hands. They needed the nerves to give pain to us. God has designed us like that, and Paul Brand thought he could do better, and then he realized in his humility, huh, God knew what he was doing after all. These nerves have uses that we ignorant humans will ignore unless we feel it, unless it makes us stop. So, man cannot contend with him. God knows, and if he's made it straight, we can't make it crooked. If he's made it crooked, we can't make it straight. The next one, in 6.12 at the start, who knows what is good for man in his life all the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow, all the days of his vain life. And then in 7.14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. Again, it's what you're to do in the days of your life. He's partially answered that question. Now, what's interesting about this is that he answers it for man, understanding his limitations. But man, back here, wants more, I believe. In 6.12, man wants more. How can I live my life to where nothing bad ever happens, to where I never have to experience pain? Well, that's to want to escape our creaturehood. That's to want to be as God. And the third one, again in 6.12, A and C at the end, who knows what is good for man? And at the end, who can tell what will happen after him under the sun? And then in 7.14 at the end, God has appointed the one as well as the other so that man cannot find out that which will come after him. So God has hemmed us in. What we can do, what we can know, he's limited us. Now, the sermon title is Embrace Limitations. The phrase that I told you uh, captures the main message of Ecclesiastes was a man's got to know his limitations. I believe it goes further than that. A man's got to know, a man's got to embrace his limitations. If you seek joy and contentment in this world, then you must acknowledge God as the master and us as the slave. It's that relationship that we're talking about. He's the boss of us. You know, we kid about that. You're not the boss of me. But God is the boss of us. He's the boss of us all. And so, in so many small ways, God grants us liberty. We all think, oh, I don't do that. No, no. God's the boss of me. Really, He is. We say it. But then by our actions, we don't live it. We say, here, God, take the reins. Oh, no, I want those back. Here, God, take the reins. Oh, no, I want those back. We do that a lot. And so, throughout the day, throughout the week ahead, reflect on this. 
And I'm not just talking about a besetting sin that you might have. I'm talking about at the core of your being, are you in harmony with God's will in your life or do you fight against it? Many of us fight against it. We just don't realize we're doing it. In Acts 9, 1 to 5, Jesus appears to Saul on the road to Damascus. The bright light appears from heaven. He's blinded. And they all hear the voice, or they all saw the light. They don't hear the voice. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And then Jesus said this, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. He didn't ask Paul a question, or Saul at the time. He just told him what Saul has been experiencing during this whole battle he's taken on with the Christians. Saul is not a happy man. He's not a man that is fulfilling his destiny. He's not living a life of joy and contentment at this point because he's wrested the reins from God's hand. He's refused to respond to all of the, uh, the issues that God is bringing into his life. Go study it, Saul. Go study it, Saul. Oh, no, no. I know. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go kill these people. And so he says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. So see, Jesus has had goads, those prods that move the beasts along. Zap, 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 poke, poke, poke get the cows and the sheep moving in the right direction. Saul's been experiencing those, and he's been resisting them. He's been fighting against them. He's been ignoring them. He's been saying, oh, no, no, those are of the devil. I'm doing God's work here. We all could probably have Jesus tell us these same words. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. God promises us that we will not live joyful lives to the degree that we are comfortable kicking against the goads. We must submit to him. And so if you do battle against God every week and you try to pretend that you're not, but you are, you just have to acknowledge that. That, that as I said earlier about the words, God is the master of words. He will conquer you. He will tame you. You want to go willingly. You don't want to have to be goaded into obedience. Let's pray. Father, we are your people. We are the sheep of your pasture. We know that we do not obey you in all things, and yet, Father, we know that in our heart of hearts we want to. And yet we are so corrupted and polluted by this sin-filled world that we are so prone to justify our sin, to paper over our sin. And not even our sins, Lord, but even just our heart's desire. We have not aligned our hearts to seek your will, to seek your face. And so we repent of this. We pray, Lord, that you would awaken us to our true purpose on this earth, to seek you, to not kick against the goads, to submit to your authority, Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your mightiness, for your almightiness. We thank you that we will never be able to rule the world as you rule the world. And we pray, Lord, that you would have us to accept this and to accept it with joy and with a contentment.
and to constantly have our alarms and alerts out to where we want to take the reins back from your hands and refuse to do what it is that you would have us to do. Thank you, Lord, for your blessings and thank you for your presence. We come to you now and ask you to bless us in the days and weeks ahead. May you open our eyes to see how we can best serve you, how we can more clearly follow you and obey you. We thank you, Father. In Christ's name, amen.